Good morning. It is good to see you all. I want to thank you for uh, indulging me for a few moments in prayer. Hopefully uh, something we want to continue to do as a faith family is to pray not only for our church here at Southside, but for churches around the nations. And uh, it is a joy to be able to pray specifically for churches, both nationally and internationally, and to know that those very same churches are praying for our fellowship today as well in our time in worship. Well, uh, man, I want to invite you, if you would, we are still in First Peter. Um, if you've not been with us, we are still walking uh, with the elect exiles. And as a reminder to you this morning, again, as we're reading First Peter together, I want you to remember that we are now surrounded by Christians who are experiencing persecution like nothing that we have ever seen, nothing that we have ever experienced by God's grace, yet there are many among us today that are experiencing some of the same persecution that Peter describes through his letter. Now this particular persecution that the elect exiles, as Peter calls them, was experiencing was persecution that was coming from within the church as the body of believers were beginning to turn on themselves and attack themselves, but a lot of the persecution was also coming from outside of the church as well. Now, as we know through history, this particular persecution um, usually led to some form of imprisonment or removal from the community. Uh, There were Christians who, because of their faith, were losing their homes, losing their work. And in a, a growing number, as history tells us, there were Christians who, simply because of their faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, were being tortured and put to death because of their faith. And so Peter, who by the time he writes 1 Peter, now living in Rome, he is seeing and experiencing all this persecution happening firsthand. And yet he is the same disciple or apostle, if you will, who has already experienced this particular type of pain before. And so he writes to the church to ultimately keep them focused and keep encouraging them on what matters. So in our text this morning in 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter really gives a pre-game pep talk, if you will, on gospel-driven holiness. Now, I don't know about you, but there are a lot of things that run through my head when I think of pep talks, and I just want you to think of a pep talk that may come to your mind. Now, I'm going to go ahead and tell you, I'm going to spare you the sports analogies this morning. I have heard from you. They are done for a little while. So I'm going to try something new this morning, okay? I don't know why you're laughing. It's not funny. Anyway, have you ever been given a pep talk from a parent? Or maybe someone who mentored you? Maybe they said something to you that changed the course and the direction of, of your history and, and what it was that you were called to. Maybe they said something to you that, that challenged you and pushed you in a way that you never thought was even possible. I'm sure our graduates could probably speak to that this morning themselves. Maybe you've been given a pep talk from a coach or you heard a pep talk from a coach that motivated your team and all of a sudden your team did something that no one thought was even remotely possible. Maybe it was something as simple as a movie line. Maybe it's your favorite movie right now that's running through your head and you think, man, I remember that particular speech in the movie and man, that, that, that speech itself just really made me want, run, run through a brick wall even though it was just simply a line from a movie. I want you to think about that for a moment because I want to tell you that several movies have given us some incredible lines for us to remember and often we can quote. I don't know how many of you have seen the movie Independence Day. 
But there's a particular scene where President Whitmore gives a speech before the human response to the invasion that's already taken place. And not to spoil the movie, but there comes a scene where he stands at an airport before they're all to take flight. And he says that the world will now know that this is our Independence Day. For we will not be vanquished. We will not go down without a fight. For today, we celebrate our Independence Day. Maybe you've seen the movie Gladiator. And you think of former General Maximus who, before their first battle as slaves, tells his group, no matter what comes out of that gate, if we stay together as one, we will survive. If we fight together as one, we will win. Or perhaps your favorite movie is Braveheart. It's a good one. Perhaps you're reminded of William Wallace, who before the Battle of Stirling says, in the best Scottish accent that I will not even attempt this morning, he says, they may take our lives, but they will never take our, you know, freedom. You're right. Or maybe, just maybe, maybe you thought of a simpler line. Maybe a line from the movie Lord of the Rings when Aragorn, standing at the walls of Mordor, completely surrounded by the enemy, looks back at this small army that has gathered to fight the enemy. And he says a line that, yes, is not in the books, but still it's a classic line nonetheless. He turns and he whispers for Frodo. You know what I'm talking about. Whether it's a pep talk from a friend or a book or a movie or even a coach, I would imagine that all of us have experienced some sort of conversation that really has motivated us in some way, shape, or form. Maybe it's motivated us to, to run through a wall. Maybe all of a sudden we, we are motivated to begin to relive some sort of glory days of, of younger times and healthier times where we felt like anything and everything was imaginable and possible. Well, this morning as we look at our text from 1 Peter chapter 1, I hope that we begin to see that Peter now is giving the elect exiles a pep talk here in the section that we're about to read. And what Peter now calls the church to see is to see what happens when we place our hope in Jesus Christ. And it's through that hope that Peter is then going to give this pep talk in order to motivate the church to pursue gospel-driven holiness, which ultimately reveals the implications of a life lived with hope and how we, as Christians today, should look to God and celebrate God as the one who gives us this hope. So this morning, let's look to the hope that we are now called to that is centered around gospel-centered or gospel-driven Holiness. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, I would invite you to turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1, and we are going to begin reading in verse 13. Now, if you have already found your place there and you knew where we were going to go this morning, if you've already marked your Bible, if you can and are able, I would invite you now to stand in honor of the reading of the Word of God. Now again, this is Peter writing to the church, the elect exiles of the dispersion. He writes in verse 13, Therefore, Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. 
And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. Now, if I could, I want to set this scene for you. You see, Peter now bookends our text this morning with a reminder of what it is that we have in Christ, which is hope. Now, this is a continual message that we've already seen throughout 1 Peter chapter 1. And so here, Peter reminds the uh, the people that their lives have now been ransomed by Jesus Christ. So Peter now tells the church that when our hope is in Christ... We will no longer be conformed to our evil desires. And then Peter will go on to explain how it's our hope in Christ that should lead us to live a life that is holy or better yet conformed to Jesus Christ. And then what Peter's going to do this morning that we'll unpack further is he's going to close out our text by reminding the exiles of the great cost that was paid for them, which is the blood of Jesus Christ. Thus, because of Christ, the elect exiles, and including us as believers today, can rest in knowing that our hope is now sure and it is set. So if you've been taking notes over the past few weeks, let me just recap where we've been and how we got to where we are today. Peter opened his letter by telling us that we are strangers living in a strange land. We saw this back in verses 1 and 2. And as strangers, because of Jesus Christ, we have now been called to live set apart as those who have found the living hope that is in Christ, which is truly unblemished and unchanging and undefiled. We saw this back in verses 3 through 9. Now, because of the living hope that we now have in Christ, we praise God for the wonder and the power that is found concerning our salvation. We read about that in verses 10 through 12. So all these things should now lead us to see how firm our hope is when our hope is truly placed in Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord. So as we look to our text this morning, Peter exhorts the people and encourages the people to live out their hope through gospel-driven holiness. So this morning, we're going to break down our text into two parts with the goal of seeing the call to pursue gospel-driven holiness. First, we see that gospel-driven holiness should lead us to see the commands of a life that is lived in hope and a life that is lived in holiness. We see this in verses 13 through 17. Peter here calls the people to pursue gospel-driven holiness through a series of commands. Notice what he says in verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now let's pause right there. Because you see, there's a phrase in here where we just read saying, preparing your minds for actions. This is also can be translated as girding up the loins of your mind. 
Now, this would have been a very common phrase for people to use amongst the people because, you see, they were living in a region where many people wore loose clothing that worked well for their day-to-day activities. Okay, Peter and, and, and the folks around him were not wandering around in, in, in high-top sneakers and skinny jeans, okay? They were wearing very loose fabric that worked for them. However, when times of strenuous labor came, or times of fighting, or, or times of running, or sport came, the people would wrap up their garments so that they could then gain the freedom to work hard, fight hard, or even run hard. So literally what we have Peter commanding us in this very first passage is he's saying to us today, roll up your sleeves and get ready for work. Or he could be saying, roll up your sleeves and get ready for war. Now notice what Peter says next. He says, preparing our minds. Notice that Peter is not speaking to our own personal wisdom or intellect here. Rather, And and he's not saying, listen, get smarter. Rather, what he's saying is this. Keep your mind focused on the plans of God and work to maintain a Christ-like character. Notice that Peter was not calling for the people to simply add more book smarts to their mind, but rather he was calling for preparation that would train both the mind, the heart, and the soul to stay focused on the ways and the wonders of God according to his word. In fact, he tells us as much with the very next phrase when he says, being sober-minded. Notice that Peter wants us to be clear of mind. And therefore, to set our full attention on Jesus Christ. Peter then tells us to now set our hope. Now again, Peter is not referring to the feeling of hope, nor is he referring to the intensity that comes with hope. And we need to hear that this morning because we need to be careful that we don't fall into the trap uh, of not truly believing in the hope that Peter is talking about when we say things like, I don't feel like God is near me today. I don't feel like God is present. I went, to, I went to worship today and I got nothing out of it. I read my Bible today and I got nothing out of it. I just don't feel like God is near me. Peter says, no, Christian, don't do that. Christian, don't fall into that trap. Rather, focus yourself on the object and the direction of our hope, which is the grace of Jesus Christ that has been revealed and the grace that will be revealed when Christ returns. This means that we do not rest our hope on feelings because feelings are fleeting. Feelings change every day. Feelings change every moment. It was interesting, I was at a, uh, an event last night celebrating the 90s, and one of the things that came out of that event was we were talking about how many people used to wear mood rings. And I thought, man, how fleeting was that? I remember walking around in the 90s in school looking at people, and before you'd even talk to them, you would say, let me see your ring. Now, thankfully, by God's grace, I did not have one. I'd show them my high school ring if they wanted to see that, but that was really it. But that's how serious that we got wrapped up in our feelings. And Peter would say to us, no, listen. As Christians, we don't wrap ourselves in our feelings. We don't wrap ourselves in the wonder and the worry of whether or not God is with us. Rather, what we are to do, what we are commanded to do, is we are to place our hope in who Christ is. And we place our hope in the fact that he will return. So we hope 
in the promises that have been fulfilled and we hope in the promise that is to come. And so Peter tells us this is where our hope should be. You see, the reality is this for us today. When we as Christians place our hope in the promised return of Jesus Christ, that hope should motivate us to faithfulness in all areas because we know that our labor is not in vain. In fact, Paul speaks of this very point talking to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58. He says, therefore, my brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Paul, like Peter in our text this morning, is saying, Christian, focus on Christ and press onward. Your pain, your heartache, your hardship, your struggle, your labor is not in vain. Coming back to the text in verse 14, Peter continues. He says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Now, Peter is now giving an honest description of the former life of every Christian and gives a command to stay away from it here. Now, just kind of put this in context. In Peter's day, most of the people who came to Christ often found themselves in lives that were either wrapped in or warped by pagan gods. You see, the people in Peter's day believed in things like polytheism, which is the worship of multiple gods, or emperor worship. And these things simply demanded nothing more than blind, dumb loyalty. At the same time, they were also immersed in a culture that taught pain should be minimized. And as people, you should seek all that gives you pleasure, regardless of what that pleasure may be, what it may cost you, or what it may cost someone else. And so Peter says to the church, as those who are marked by God, we are now called to walk in a way marked by his character and marked by his law. Peter's point was very simple. Peter is now calling the church to pursue gospel-driven holiness by resisting the pressure to conform to this age and therefore turn from sinful acts that are common to culture and are outside the covenant that we now have with Christ through his word. I'm going to tell you today as Christians in the modern church, this really should sit heavy with us today. I mean, look Uh, at the media, look at news, look how more and more Christians are not living out their faith and rather they are living by some sort of cultural norm. Notice how more and more people are turning their faith into a a Jesus and fill-in-the-blank type of religion. Notice how many churches have decided to follow societal norms versus trusting in the very word of God and saying, upon this word I stand and no further. Peter would say to us today, I believe, if he were here, he would say, listen, stop living your life based on societal standards. Stop living your life whether you're blue or red. Stop following the crowd. 
Follow Jesus. Obey the word. Allow the word to guide you. Live according to the word, even if following Jesus and following the word makes you unpopular. You see, like exiles in Peter's day, we've got to stop watering down the truth. And we've got to start living according to the word. Coming back to the text in verse 15 and 16, Peter now gives another command on how to live gospel-driven holiness. He says, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Notice here that Peter recognizes that we will still feel the passion and the desires to follow our sinful state. But as disciples of Christ, we should recognize and resist sin. Here Peter refers the exiles back to Leviticus chapter 11 verse 44 and he says as God's children we should now take on the traits of Jesus Christ. In fact Jesus says the very same thing as well in the gospel of Matthew chapter 5 verse 48 when he says you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now let me unpack what we're hearing from Peter and what we've just heard from Jesus' own words as well. You see, Jesus and Peter are not saying be perfect in the way that we define perfection. He's not saying be perfect in the way the world defines perfection, but rather both are saying to live lives centered on the pursuit of gospel-driven holiness. Peter tells us to pursue biblical holiness to pursue our own growth in that holiness which is found in our righteousness and in our growth in justice and as we continue to pursue holiness according to the word it should lead to a separation from sin itself you see when we pursue holiness we seek to be set apart from this world for the glory of God. I'm going to say it again. When we pursue holiness, footnote, we are not always going to get it right. But that's not an excuse. When we pursue holiness, we seek to be set apart from this world for the glory of God. Now, does this mean that we now need to withdraw from society and hole up in our homes? We talked about this a week ago and the week before that. Oh, no, absolutely not. You see, we do need to stay engaged with the world, which means that we may get a little dirty along the way. However, we as Christians are at our strongest when we are able to know how to separate from worldliness while staying engaged with the world itself according to the word of God. So as Christians, we need to remember that it's easy to conform to the world if we're not paying attention. It's easy to conform to the world if we are not being careful as mankind in sin. It is easy to engage the world and surrender to its vices as opposed to separating ourselves from it. So Peter commands the Christians to live in the world but to do so in a way that allows you to continue to be holy and to continue to live separate from the world's standards. You see, Peter is saying, listen, we should be holy because the God who called us to him is holiness. Notice that Peter is pointing us to the fact that holiness is both our obligation and our future as we seek to conform to the very character of God. 
And then Peter closes this first section in verse 17 by saying, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Notice here that Peter tells the church that it is a great privilege to call God father, but at the same time, this privilege does not exempt us from obedience since he is also the one who judges. I love what C.E.B. Cranfield says about this point. Famous pastor and theologian. He says it this way. He says, it is of God's infinite condescension that you are allowed to call him father. You are not to presume on his goodness, but rather let it make you reverent and humble. He has not ceased to be the impartial judge of all men. The more truly and the more intimately we know him, the more of awe and reverence we shall feel. Let me unpack what we just heard according to C.E.B. Cranfield in 1 Peter. And like a parent, a good parent, we need to recognize that God loves us. And like a good parent, it's the same God who will discipline us out of his love. But at the same time, God is a just God because unlike a parent, Unlike our parents, God is perfect and God is holy. So as God's children seeking to be holy as he is holy, we should strive to to meet his standard according to his word when it comes to gospel-driven holiness. So Peter here tells us that our God simply does not play favorites. Nor does our God look upon our appearances and says, yes, I like the way that one looks, and no, I don't think that one's going to cut it. But rather, he is the God who is our Father, and he's the God who judges our deeds. And the reality is this. Nothing is ever hidden from the eyes of God. Your secret sin. And my secret sin are not hidden from the eyes of God. See, we live in a day and a time where many people don't want to share that truth. We live in a day and a time where people try to shelve God and they try to water God down to to rainbows and unicorns type of God dancing in a field of lilies. But let's not forget that God is a God who loves us enough to discipline us. He's the same God who loves us enough to show us grace, but he is also the God who sits upon the seat of judgment. So as Christians today, let us never lose sight. This is what Peter is saying. Do not lose sight for a second that God is holy and that God is righteous and that God is just and he is also the same God who is full of grace and full of mercy and full of love. You cannot separate one from the other. Now coming back to our text, Peter speaks of our deeds and how we are to now conduct ourselves in light of our holy God. And he is not speaking here to salvation by works, but rather Peter reminds the church that our genuine faith in Christ will show itself through our words and our deeds. So as exiles living in this temporary dwelling, 
Peter says, let us conduct ourselves in both word and deed in such a way that brings glory to our God. So we have to ask this morning, when it comes to pursuing gospel-driven holiness, do we live a life worthy of the calling? Do we recognize the holiness of the God who loves us? Do we see the need to live where God has called us and to make him known right where he has us? And at the same time, recognizing that we are called as Christians to be set apart in this place all for the glory of God. You see, here's the the takeaway from verses 13 through 17. As God's chosen people, We are called to live and speak in a way that reveals our primary goal is to glorify God in our pursuit of gospel-driven holiness. This brings us to our second point in verses 18 through 21. And Peter teaches us that when we pursue gospel-driven holiness, we begin to see the celebration that comes with the completed work of Christ. So notice what Peter has done. He's given us some commands, okay? He's given us the pep talk. These are the plays we're going to run, and then he's going to close this out by reminding us we're going to run the play, but the victory is already there, okay? So look at what he does. Peter now gives us the why for pursuing gospel-driven holiness. Look at verse 18 and 19 again with me. He says, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Notice that Peter says simply here, we should be holy because it's Jesus Christ who has redeemed us from an empty and dead life. Peter here is using language that the people would have understood in order to motivate them to press on. He says to them that they were liberated from war. They were slaves and held captive against their own will by their sin. But it was Christ who set them free by the ransom that was paid with his blood. Notice here that Peter reminds the church that the debt of our sin was something that we ourselves could not pay for, but rather was paid when we were ransomed, or better yet, acquired by the blood of Jesus Christ himself. Peter takes it one step further, and he says, listen, you weren't paid for with gold. You weren't paid for with silver. Do you you begin to see that? Our, Our sin Redeeming from our sin is not worth gold. You can't have enough silver to redeem yourself. There is not enough money in your bank account to pay the sin debt that you owe. And guess what? The Bitcoin is not going to save you either. Man, some folks learned a hard lesson about that this week. But notice what Peter's saying. He's saying that would be way too easy. But no, our life was paid for by the precious blood of the one who was without sin. Our life was paid for by the one who was perfect. Now just think about this for a moment. 
As Christians, we should desire to live holy lives because of the price that was paid for us by the one who knew no sin and was completely perfect. So think about this, okay? Our stained lives were made clean by the one whose clean life was now stained by the price of our sin that was paid for by his blood. Do we see the hope and the victory that is found in Jesus Christ? I mean, Peter is reminding the exiles again and again and again of the wonderful atoning work of Jesus Christ. But notice Peter's not done, okay? It's only going to get bigger, okay? So, so think of the exiles getting all fired up like they're about to blow through their church doors. And then in verse 20, he says, listen, as if being paid for by the blood wasn't enough, look at this. He said, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. Peter teaches the exiles that God foresaw and predestined the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. And it's through Christ that God has accomplished his eternal plan that was known before the creation of the world. Listen, Peter's telling the church, look, this was all done for the glory of God and for the sake of who? You. God provided a plan of redemption for his creation. And we are a part of that plan. I don't know if that gives you joy this morning or not. I'm going to let you just sit on that one for a little while. But if I could for a brief moment, I want to take you back to an earlier illustration to kind of put into perspective what Peter is talking about. Do you remember my line from Lord of the Rings? I know some of you do. We have talked about this. Several of us have talked about this. And there are some of you in the room who have read Lord of the Rings. I have read them. I also have watched the movies. I enjoy both. Um, I'm not a purist. Uh, in the sense of saying the book is better in this regard, although it still is. However, I'm not going to shun the movie. And if that is you today, uh, can I just say something to you this morning? Uh, show grace and move on, okay? The movies aren't that bad. But notice this. If we took that same moment earlier, God, before creation, set the plan of redemption in motion. And before the final battle began, before creation was spoken into existence, God looked upon the heavenlies and said, for my glory and for my people. And then God went to work. I mean, do we see our part in God's plan of redemption? And notice what Peter does next. He closes out our passage by uh, saying in verse 21, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Notice Peter says that if we believe in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, then we now live in him. Thus day by day, it is now the Spirit that is at work in us. It is the Spirit that is now redeeming us. It is the Spirit that is now sanctifying us as a part of God's redemptive plan for his creation. And again, this is being done so that day by day, we can see more of the beauty in Jesus' plan of redemption and the hope that is now found in knowing him.
You see, as Christians today, do we see that even this moment was set apart as holy? Do you see that even in this moment, the Spirit of God is at work in your life? Maybe you're here today and you're, you're not a Christian. Do you see that it was the Spirit of God that has now been drawing you to this place? Do you see that it is the gospel that has redeemed us? That God has been at work in all of his creation since the beginning of time? And it is God who will complete his work when Christ comes? And he will do it for his glory. And we are a part, albeit small, we are a part of that plan. Christians today, I don't know where you are. I don't know what's going on. I'm looking around and I see a couple teachers that are living out the last few weeks of school. I see parents with worry on their face as their kids are living out the last few weeks of school and they're about to be home. I see people with jobs that are uncertain. People that are dealing with loss and heartache. And I want to say to you this morning, in the midst of all that is happening in your life, do you see that you are a part of God's redemptive plan? Do you see that you're not here by chance? No, it's the, the Spirit of God that has drawn you to this place. And it's the Spirit of God that continues to work in your life, seeking to redeem you and sanctify you and prepare you for what life is going to be like in eternity. I mean, just imagine for a moment what it will be like when we get to look upon the face of our Lord and Savior and see life without the lens of sin. Because that day is coming. Here's our takeaway from verses 18 through 21. Peter says, as we pursue gospel-driven holiness, we should begin to see, celebrate the completed work of Jesus Christ and what that now means for the believer. So I want to ask you today, Christian, do you still marvel and wonder at what Christ has done on our behalf? As you consider salvation, which is what we talked about a week ago, do you marvel and wonder at the plan of redemption that was set in the motion before creation? You see, as Peter notes and writes, holiness begins and ends with hope. And that hope is found through Jesus Christ in whom we believe and in whom we now have confidence. All for the glory of God. Our hope, Peter says, is not in vain, but rather rests upon Jesus Christ who has redeemed us from an empty life, who is now covered over our sins, who has now called us to holiness, and it's Jesus Christ who has given us reason to hope. So in Christ, we now see the celebration of the completed work that was set into motion before creation. And it's in Christ, our Lord and Savior, that we now see the command to pursue gospel-driven holiness. So I ask you this morning, what are you pursuing today? Let's pray together.